Fall is here and class is back in session. And with an all-new school year comes an all-new season of our podcast, Campus Killings. I'm Dr. Megan Sachs. And I'm Dr. Amy Sloshberg. And we're the hosts of Campus Killings. In season one, we brought you 20 episodes covering some of the most sinister crimes to take place on or around school campuses, or the cases we discussed had a school-connected theme. From the recent high-profile cases like the November 2022 Moscow-Idaho murders of four students, to older cases like the 1966 murder of Sherry Jo Bates in Riverside, California, a case with possible ties to the infamous Zodiac Killer. We also touched on cases that played a role in changing campus laws in order to better protect students. In season two of Campus Killings, which debuts on September 16th, 2023, we'll dive into an all-new set of campus-related murder cases. And as usual, we'll include our analysis of each case as both educators and criminologists. We hope you'll check out season two of Campus Killings. And don't worry, if you haven't listened to season one yet, all of our episodes are available to binge right now wherever you listen to podcasts. You're listening to The Murder in My Family, brought to you by Abject Entertainment. Be sure to check out some of the other great true crime podcasts from this network, including Missing Persons, DNA ID, Scene of the Crime, Zodiac Speaking, Beyond Bizarre True Crime, Citizen Detective, and Campus Killings, All of these podcasts are available for you to binge on right now, wherever you listen to podcasts. Subscribe where you're listening to this podcast so you don't miss an episode. The views and opinions expressed by guests on this podcast do not necessarily represent those of the podcast, its host, or sponsors. If you would like to discuss the murder in your family on this podcast, please be sure to visit themurderinmyfamily.com for more information. This episode may contain unsettling material or subject matter. Listener discretion is advised. Thank you for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'm your host, Mike Morford. Independent podcasts like this one depend on word of mouth to bring in new listeners. So if you find that you enjoy this show, please take a moment to rate and review it wherever you listen to your podcast. And be sure to introduce a friend to the show and invite them to listen. With your help, The Murder of My Family can continue to grow and reach a new audience. To learn more about the show or the cases we discuss, please visit themurderofmyfamily.com. You can also find us on Twitter with the handle at MurderMyFam or on Facebook at Facebook.com slash T-M-I-M-F podcast. If you'd like to support the Murder of My Family and get VIP access to things like ad-free listening, early preview episodes, and bonus content of not only this show, but for every other podcast on the Abject Network of Indie Podcast, consider subscribing to the show with an Abject Insider subscription through Apple Podcast. For only $4.99 a month or $49.99 a year, you'll unlock a variety of listener benefits and you'll be supporting the show in the process. Your support is greatly appreciated. And thank you to all of the supporters that generously donate to help keep the show growing and improving. One last note, please support any of the sponsors that you hear on The Murder of My Family the way that those sponsors support the show. It's with our sponsor support that this show can go on and continue to provide a platform to share these stories with you in every episode. Thank you. And now on with the show. Hey, listeners. Thank you for joining me for part two of my coverage into the murder of Liz Barraza. If for some reason you didn't listen to part one yet, 
You should stop now and go back and listen to that episode before listening to part two here. Just to recap, in part one, I provided the backstory and details of Liz's case and started a discussion with Liz's parents, Bob and Rosemary, and we were joined by Andy Kahn, Director of Victim Services and Advocacy for Crime Stoppers of Houston. We discussed a variety of topics, including dealing with the aftermath of Liz's murder, grief, anger, and where families can turn to for help when they find themselves in this kind of situation. It was very important for Bob and Rosemary to help others if they can by sharing their experiences and what they learn from them, and to provide advice or tips that may help someone listening. Our discussion was so long and involved that I needed to split it up into two parts. What you're about to hear now is part two of that conversation. As the family members of a victim and you're following along, the first rule is your job is to get the story out to people that can help solve it. And that means a couple of things. Number one, you need to have the right relationship with law enforcement. And there are ways to do that and ways not to do that. And we've been very, very fortunate that we got good advice from Andy on how to do it. And we just lucked out with great detectives. Harris County Sheriff's Office under Ed Gonzalez has just done a wonderful job of making sure that we had focus on the case. I mean, this case is four years, seven months old, and it is not a cold case. Mm -hmm. Andy had told us about when we were talking about how to deal with detectives is that we need to find out what the way they prefer to be reached. Um, and so we took that to heart. That's the first thing we asked Detective Ritchie was, what's the best way to communicate with you? And yes. he said text. For him, it's text. Somebody, other detective, it might be email or it might be phone or whatever. Um, but but whatever that was, it is. That was key to us because we know Michael wants us to call him, or to text him. And, 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 He's, I mean, he's really good about, we are very fortunate because he is very quick to respond. Um, and that response may be, I can't talk right now. Um, I'll talk to you tomorrow or whatever. Right. And, and he's extraordinarily good about follow-up. But every detective is going to be different. And you just need to find the right way to, to, to work with your detective, what's best for them. Um, and And sometimes... The detectives are very, they don't tell you anything. I mean, right. we've seen that in the PLMC meetings that, you know. So many cases. You and, know, and so you know, we, we are fortunate that he at least will call us and say, I don't really have anything to tell you. But, well, you like know, Andy said, um, Andy said, Andy is literally always at the POMC meetings to provide guidance. And one of the things that you get in a lot of cases, the the law enforcement is not necessarily responsive to the family. And some of that relates to the fact that they're besieged, that crime is just everywhere, and the forces out there are there, and they're not necessarily supporting police, whereas that's one of our primary goals is to support our law enforcement agencies as much as we can. But Andy will say, like, well, if your detective won't call you back, you know, they have a boss. And that boss has a boss. And so if, you're, if your detective is not answering your calls, go to his sergeant. 
And if you get blown up by the sergeant, go to his lieutenant. Yeah. And if you get blown up by the lieutenant, there are levels above it. Ultimately, you can end up with the with the person with primary responsibility. In our case, it's the sheriff. And so one of the things that Andy said is do everything in your power to understand the chain of command and cultivate a relationship, positive relationship with that chain of command. So, I mean, uh, Prime Stoppers does some wonderful events. They host the National Day of Remembrance uh, for POMC and they do a Christmas, um, they do a Christmas remembrance and they always invite these really super important people for a reason. So you can count on the sheriff of Harris County to be there. You can count on the the police chief for the city of Houston to be there. And Andy will walk you up and introduce you to him. And I wanted to be sure that I could get in touch with Ed Gonzalez because if we had something really important coming up, like a press conference or uh, a piece of media, I want to be able to help my detectives get involved in it. And so we have a very, very confidential contact list that includes all of these people. Um, and even, and this is something that idea that we had was we decided that even though we don't have a case, okay, so we don't have a, an arrest in our case, the next step is really ugly. And that is the whole judicial process. And I felt like I wanted the district attorney for Harris County to know who we are, to know about our case, and to understand that, that we support law enforcement and we support the district attorney. So Andy invited me to be a guest at one of their big events and we managed to kind of pull her aside and have a brief conversation with her. And the net effect of that has been is that she recognizes me at events. Uh, she'll come forward and sit down and talk to us. Um, she even had members of her staff contact our detectives and talk about the case. And the whole concept behind this is I want to make sure that our detectives have the support that they need at every step in the process. So if they need to go get a search warrant, they're not going to be walking in and they're going to say, Liz, who? And so part of the whole thing behind the publicity and what you do is um, you got to, you got to follow the idea that you need to be doing positive things to support the case, to support law enforcement, get the word out, uh, have this list of media. I mean, it's, it's all super important. It. Yeah, yeah. So, so we just came up with a new idea. Rosemary and I came up with a new idea that we want to send out a, um, a high level newsletter when we have significant things to report and the recipients of this newsletter include all of the all of the media people that we have a positive relationship with that we trust it includes the law enforcement community the district attorney the crime stoppers staff and i mean they've they've got seven or eight people on their staff that have helped our family throughout this because that's just the nature of the organization and the idea behind it is when we get a piece of 
important information, we want to let them know. So I would love, I'm going to send this newsletter out, I think, tonight. Uh, I would love to get three or four or five requests for media to do an interview to talk about the case. And that's all part of this whole thing of you have to work to support the case. You have to do whatever it takes. You know, um, the Crime Stoppers creates these reward flyers. Uh, we, we've talked a little bit about um, the pro things, the good things uh, in this space that have helped you, that have uh, uh, been good for the case. But then we, we touched on a little bit of the, the negatives, the, the, the people that have sort of done the case a disservice. Um, how do you try and filter out, you know, you, you mentioned you have Andy that helps you with some of the decisions, but does part of it just come down to talking to someone, getting a feel for them and getting a, a gut feeling as to whether you should interact with them? Yes. <laughs> and, yeah. and in our case, so in our case, again, you know, let's, let's not sugarcoat anything. We're actually very blessed. We're blessed because we have got this army of people that, that love our daughter and now love us and are willing to help. So one of the things is I personally will not go out and, and, and look at social media in any way, shape or form especially uh, discussion forums like Reddit um, or WebSleuth. And it's it's just simply because it's just too painful. But we have friends that, that will do this, and they will look at stuff, and they'll tell us, oh, you should take a look at this. This is very interesting, or this is really bad. You know, stay away from this. And so we actually get a lot of support from people who are very smart, very connected into the social media community. And they give us advice on, you know, you should really, you should really talk to this person. There's a, uh, there's a family at the POMC that um, we've become very close to. They're in the, they just completed their trial. And they have taken a very smart approach to their media and they we've shared resources back and forth and they'll say oh by the way don't talk to these people they're horrible or um we just talked with this guy and really solid we really like him if you want an introduction we'll be happy to give him your name and so this pomc parents of murdered children's group is also a place where you can get information on other people's experience and if i have a family if i if i have a, a group member that wants to give me some advice on, you know, never talk with these people. Um, we'll take that advice. I mean, somebody let us know that there's a channel that if you do an interview with, will force you to sign a contract that basically says that you can't talk about this elsewhere for six months. And not, not, not what we want to do. Yeah. That, <laughs> that's, you know, and that might be something they may not disclose in, you know, in the signing the on-air agreements and such. And so we now know we have them on our, our do not talk to. Um, so really it's, it is, uh, there the, is a gut feeling though. There, there are things that we are just like, well, you have to go and watch what they've done because past behavior is the best predictor of future behavior. Mm -hmm. So if you go and listen to their podcasts and 
and they're full of, of snide comments or inaccuracies or uh, very clearly have an agenda that may not be in the best interest of the crime or the victim's families, you know, um, we'll walk away. We, you know, we, won't, we, we won't talk to them. We had one company, or not company, show. It was going to be a new show called, and they wanted to interview us for one of their first airings. So they hadn't even, it wasn't even on air yet. Yeah, we couldn't see an episode. So um, we're talking to them, and they, everything was fine. We're feeling them out, hearing about it listening to what they had to say and what their their show was going to be like and then they offered to pay us a appearance fee. appearance fee and i mean red flags went up <laughs> and it's like oh no oh you know i mean and we continue talking to them i mean we weren't talking about the case we we're just talking about their format and all that kind of stuff and uh but we were just both like, what? So right away we called Andy and we're like, going, they offered us an appearance fee. And I mean, we're just like, we've, we don't, we've, we don't want to make money off this. We don't, it's, this, this is, no, if you want to pay us for it. And Andy goes, I've done a lot of interviews. He says, I've never been paid. <laughs> I've never been offered to be paid and an offer to be paid. And he said, yeah, your instincts are right. You More know, and, you know, but it's, it was going to be on, you know, cable TV. I mean, it was going to be, it was going to be a show. Yeah. And, and, and it turned out we were so right. And we knew it before we even asked Andy, but we just like went, okay, you know, it's kind of one of those things where almost like, any publicity is good publicity because it gets people, gets people talking, but it was so horrible. And it, 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 you know, the thought of this and he's like, no, your instincts are right. So the, there is a thing where it is instinct. So one of the things I wanted to talk to you about, Andy, was when somebody comes to you needing your help with families just lost somebody and they need uh, an advocate, somebody that's going to help them with the case uh, as far as, you know, not only what crime stoppers does in, in trying to bring resolution to cases, bring attention to them, but you also personally advocating uh, for a case. What steps do you take and, and, What's your process with that? Well, I can tell you, Mike, each case is different. It's unique. There's no manual or policy that you look at. So you got to look at two separate criteria. One, like in the case of Bob and Rosemary, where you have an unsolved case where we don't have a suspect in custody. So that merits a different type of advocacy of trying to get the case solved in every means possible. And early on, in my career as a victim advocate, when I started out in the mayor's office, I realized very early on that the media would be my most powerful ally, a tool, an arsenal, and if properly used, can be a weapon of change. So I needed them to get these issues and to get these cases and to get victim stories out, 
they needed me for referrals and for sound bites and for issues involving the criminal justice system. So I developed what I would call a marriage made in heaven with local and national media to work on putting victims' rights on the forefront. So my position as a victim advocate has basically kind of separated me from most victim advocates where you've got to think outside the box. And one of the ways I thought was that victims' rights is a product and you have to market your product. You have to sell your product. But in order to do that, the public has to know you have a product. And that's why I'm very prominent in both local and national media talking about these issues because you've got to get these issues out to the public. Now, in the cases in which we do have somebody that's charged, that's a whole different ballgame because now families are thrust into this whole new world, or as I like to call it, it's like trying to learn a foreign language when you're put into the criminal justice system. So I kind of am there to guide families through the system. I can separate what I call, you know, bureaucracy or BS or answers that some governmental entities might want you to know just to keep you at bay or just to placate you. But I will never sugarcoat anything. I will always be flat out straight with you and you'll get a straight answer from me one way or the other. And so as we proceed through the actual court process, that's where I kind of really come into play because I know all the players. I know the ins and outs. I know the plea deals. I know the judges. I know the prosecutors. So I just want to make sure that throughout the process that the victim's rights are being looked after because like I've always said, they're the only unwilling participants. So that's kind of the mode that I come in. And then we take it a step further that when a defendant is actually convicted, then we added another component, another element to victim advocacy, and that's post-conviction advocacy. For the most part, when an offender gets sentenced eventually, they will become parole eligible. And that's a venture and an area that very few victim advocates have ever entered into. But that's one area that I knew that basically was barren and no one was addressing. So I also do that as well. And we talked a little bit last time about you sort of have helped uh, in this particular instance, um, Bob and Rosemary navigate media, who they should talk to, the benefits of talking to certain outlets. Um, when you're, you know, feeling out the, uh, the media for different things to see it, what's worth talking to, who's, who's worth, uh, reaching out to, how do you decide who to go with and, and why somebody may be a ally or a, a friend in the case versus someone else that may not have uh, somebody like Bob and, and Rosemary's best interest at heart? You know, Mike, it used to be simple and easy because you just had local media, you had local news and you had print media and that was it. So it was fairly easy to dissertain between what would be a good venue to get these stories out or ones that wouldn't be. So, of course, with social media, it's become a whole different ballgame, and especially with the true crime uh, genre exploding on various sites throughout the Internet, and social media has become more of a difficult 
process. So local and national media pretty much know who the players are and what would be a good fit. It's the social media that is problematic because you have other people that might have ulterior motives of getting these cases out there. And in some cases, there's fees involved. And I will never do anything to have Bob and Rosemary actually pay any type of fee to get their story out there. And then you just do like any other investigative journalist would do. I do my background. I do my research. I look into who wants to do their story, any positive or negative reviews. And in some cases, I'll actually talk with other families that have spoken with them to get their perspective on whether they thought this was a good or a not so good thing. And so when you're helping families out, because uh, unfortunately there are a lot of Bob and Rosemary's out there that you work with, lots of people that have lost a loved one. Is it difficult not to personally get connected to each of those cases and sort of do they, what does that weigh on you personally, uh, you know, having to, to learn about each one of these devastating incidents and, and get to know the families. Do you feel like uh, that's heavy for you to, to deal with that? And how do you deal with that? You know, in some cases it is early on in my career in the nineties, it was overwhelming and it was overwhelming because we had a severe crime problem in Harris County with uh, homicide rates and laws that were lax in dealing with victims' rights. So, it took me a while, quite frankly, to learn how to balance between going 24-7 nonstop and actually learning how to work on cases without overwhelming yourself personally and emotionally so that you wouldn't be available for other cases. And you have to have outlets as well. So, you know, for doing this for 30 years, it you know, to be frank, it was it's a learning process. And there are certain cases that touch you more than other cases. That's just human nature and that's reality. And that's why I've always uh, always said there are front page cases and there are back page cases. And each case is unique and each involvement of myself is essentially like being a Broadway actor. You There's so many different roles that you can play, but it's all dependent on the actual script that you're handed on how you react to that. So it's there's very few of us that are able to do this type of work, especially for a long time period like I've done. But I've always said, as long as I still have passion burning in me, I'll continue to do what I do. And if I didn't have passion, and if I didn't become close with families, then I would be just another bureaucrat or someone working nine to five where I punch a clock. And that's just not me. Yeah. I, I've heard a lot of cases of, you know, police officers, detectives that work on these cases and sort of take them home with them and it weighs on them and it affects their family life. And a lot of them have divorces and other issues, alcoholism, things like that, because it, it's hard to sort of disconnect and leave everything at the office when you come home. Um, and I imagine, you know, that to some extent that boils over, it carries over to someone like yourself that's in an adjacent field that's that's uh, dealing with the same kinds of things. No, I mean, it's definitely an art. It's definitely a fine line. And because realistically, you can do this 
seven days a week, 24 hours nonstop if you wanted to. So you have to learn where to, where to, what best fits your type of personality. And it's kind of like being in a ways like a fireman. There'll be nonstop action for days a week where you're just constantly going. And then you'll have an occasional lull where you can sit back and catch up and look at some of the cases with on, on a more reasonable time schedule than you would be if you were bouncing around like a pinball. And because I do legislative work, that creates a, an additional issue as well, because during the legislative session, um, constantly going back and forth to Austin, trying to get uh, better laws for victims' rights and public safety. So, you know, I, I like to say to, you know, for some of us that do this and very tongue in cheek, and I'm not meaning to put them, put all of us on a pedestal, but we are the true guardians of the galaxy. And that's how I like to look at it. And along those lines, uh, Bob and Rosemary, I'd like to ask you too, um, as far as this case, obviously this is your daughter, so this is important to you. And I try and, you know, I can't ever put myself in your shoes because I don't know what it's like to go through what you've gone through. But I, I imagine that if something, God forbid, happened to one of my kids, uh, the way this happened to your family, I'd, I, I don't know how I would be able to turn it off. I think I'd be 24-7 just laser focused on the case and, and nothing else. And I, I, you know, I don't know how you navigate doing the the job of getting the word out there, monitoring the website, uh, putting new details out there, but then also going on with your day-to-day lives and jobs and your relationship and um, the Star Wars stuff that you do, things like that, things, it, it seems like you need to have some kind of separation from the case uh and still leave times for for yourselves. And how do you do that? So when, when Liz was originally murdered, the, the two weeks following that are a total blur. Um, you just, I can't, I can't think of anything else we did in those two weeks except case-related stuff. And this is going to sound weird, but fortunately I was unemployed at the time. Um, I had been uh, looking for new work since October of the previous year. And um, the advantage that we had that I think was really important was I was able to stay home and be there for my wife, for my son, for, for, for my family, for Sergio as well. He had moved into our house uh, because he just couldn't bring himself to live in the house where she was murdered. And um, that really was a, it was a real hardship because clearly we had, very little money coming in. We had expenses, but I don't, I don't know how I could have balanced work, family, and, and this 
if I hadn't had the time. But today, you know, four years and seven months later, it's a constant topic of conversation between my wife and I. And a day does not go by when we're not thinking about what else do we have to do, uh, speculating on, on, on the case, um, reaching out to people. I mean, a big part of what we've done that I think has been very helpful is we reach out to people on a regular basis to first off, see how they're doing. But secondly, uh, like if it's her friends or family, um, we're, we try to always be open to discuss what we know. Um, and that there's just no escaping. You wake up in the morning thinking about it and you go to bed at night thinking about it and it keeps you up at night. Um, you know, on a regular basis, the one thing I would say that's, that's so harmful is I used to be, it'd be so easy for me to lay down, close my eyes and I would sleep through the night and I haven't done that in almost five years. I mean, it's a very different thing. It's, it's, it's always, it's always running through your mind and shutting your head off is just so difficult. But we, you know, one thing I think is to, we try to, uh, that's really helped is doing things for others. That's kind of how we can stay sane because it's, it's very difficult to actually put it out of your mind and it's gotten easier. I have to say through the years, it, it, you know, but it goes in cycles. Um, you know, I think that, you know, we're aware of, of each other and our feelings and we talk about our feelings and about everything, not just the case. Um, and it doesn't always run smoothly, but you're kind of on autopilot in the beginning. You know, like Bob was saying, you know, when it first happened, we really, we don't, we didn't know what we were doing. I mean, we didn't, wouldn't, I don't even think we knew if we were eating or not. And I, I'm sure we were, I, you know, um, but it's not like it was a conscious thing. It was kind of like when, okay, you know, you just grab a bite or whatever. Um but you really are on, or at least we were on autopilot in the beginning. And then you start, you do, you start, I don't know, you just never forget. You know, it's it's always in the back of your mind, even when you're not even aware that it's in the back of your mind. Um, you know, there's always so many triggers. And, and I think it's that way for most people. Um, I, I think we try to do things, like I said, for other people, you know, um, it, it helps. We, and it's not just us. This is the, the weirdest thing because it, to, Liz affected so many people and she really made a change in people's lives. And, and um, they were minor things. I'm not saying that, they, you know, she was doing these huge things, um, but to her, they were very minor, but she took care of people that she loved. And, and, um, 
you know, the, the, the thing that frequently happens with us is we'll see a post from someone on Facebook or someone will actually reach out to us. And it's really, really clear that they're struggling with their grief and they don't want to call us for the most part, but they'll post something. And a lot of times we'll reach out to those people and say, Hey, looks like you're having a bad day. Do you want to talk? Because we're very fortunate. I mean, don't get this wrong. We are so blessed to have the support that we've received and the help that we received from parents of murdered children, from Andy Connie, Crime Stoppers, from um, our, our law enforcement agencies that we've worked with. They have all been front and center, but her friends and other members of the family don't have that at all. And they just don't, they just, they just have a tough time dealing with it. One of the things that is different in our case is within the 501st Legion, there's these traditions and the traditions involve, uh, coins and patches and the like. And the 501st is very quick to put out commemorative challenge coins to commemorate an event like this. And when Liz passed, um, two separate groups within the 501st very quickly created, produced, and paid for commemorative items. And um, those commemorative items were used to raise money to um, help out Sergio with his expenses and such. But what we discovered is they become really important carry-alongs. And um, in one case, there was a beautiful coin that was made uh, that shows Liz and her biker scout with her favorite dog, Diesel. He's a little dachshund. Um, on the front. And those coins are frequently, even today, seen. Like whenever I go on a troop, uh, I troop as a TIE fighter pilot, and whenever I go on a troop, there'll be people there, and I'll, I have a coin that I've carried on every troop I've ever been on, and I will always take a picture with that coin wherever I am, that commemorates the event. And it's my way of saying, hey, Liz, I'm here. This is for you. But other people will do the same thing. And people go on trips. And they'll, you know, they'll see something that reminds them of Liz. And they'll take a picture of themselves with the coin and send it to us. Or somebody will say, I'm having a really bad day. Um, but I found Liz's coin in my, in my wallet or my purse. And it really helped me out. And those kinds of things are very important. So we actually created a coin uh, with the assistance of uh, Marcy Shelley, who is his best friend. And she has an artist that she uses, Peter Haig, who's just extraordinary. And we created a coin. And we've used that coin. We had 100 gold and 300 antique nickel coins created, same design, but each one is numbered individually. 
And we actually have given a lot of those coins away to people who we feel like need some point of attachment to our daughter, need some place where they can pull that coin out, hold it in their hands, look at it, and helps them remember something important. There's also uh, five or so patches that were done by the groups. And then her friend Marcy Shelley created this outreach called the Liz Library. And what she's been doing for years now is um, putting whole sets of the Harry Potter seven book series in hardbound into children's hospitals and, and shelters and uh, places where kids could benefit from the, the, the Harry Potter books. And I don't know how many books that she's done, but it's, it's a large number of these series. And these books are not inexpensive. They're about $150 for the set. But again, this is another ripple going out and, Marcy just absolutely looks for every opportunity to donate a set of books and to help raise that money. She created a series of patches. And I think it's really funny to show you how this thing takes off on you. When she did the first one, she created a patch. Um, and her thought was if I sell out all the patches, I could probably buy like five or six sets of books. And of course she sold out all the patches. They went so fast. Um, but then something really unusual happened. So she was able to get like the five or six sets of books because she put every dollar towards buying books. But she started getting contacted by people that said, you know, I don't need a patch. Can I just send you a set of books? And she ended up from the from the patch runs that she did she ended up with like, I'm going to say it was like 25 or 30 sets of books that were given to her. And she has been diligently putting those books into children's hospitals and, and places where, where kids are long-term. Ronald McDonald houses have gotten a couple. Um, and, and, and that's the thing. Those kinds of, of efforts they they help you by you helping others. And I can't tell you how, I mean, when Marcy told us about that program, Rosemary said right out, this is going to be so mad because she would have wished she'd started this thing with Marcy while she was still alive. <laughs> it's just like, it's such a great idea. And this is how you help other people. And so... Um, which helps you. Which helps you. And... And it's coming to what, it's a horrible thing to say. It's after you start down this road, at some point you hit what I've heard described as the new normal. Because you'll never be the same. You know, I did not envision my life post 60 years of age as being involved in all this, it just, I just, I never would have done the things that I've done, but that's my life now. And we're going to continue down that path as long as we have breath in our bodies. We're going to see this thing through 
to a conviction and the the people responsible being off the street because ultimately I don't want this to happen to another family. That, that, that is just like one of my biggest fears is that the person that did this to Liz is still out there and maybe doing it to someone else because the taking of one life can affect thousands. It's definitely a ripple effect for sure. Uh, that mm-hmm. one person uh, is killed and then everyone connected to them in some way, their, their lives are forever altered. Along the lines of support and grief, people that help you, people that come to you and uh, will say something positive or try and offer some uh, whatever it is they try and offer. I know sometimes I've heard that, you know, especially when we're talking about parents of murdered children, someone might come up and say, oh, I know how you feel. I know what you're going through. I lost my son to cancer or my daughter died in a car accident. Um how do you how do you usually explain if that happens, or do you explain? I don't know how you handle that situation, but obviously, while they're losing a child is never easy in any circumstance. I think it's definitely different for someone who's had a murdered child. So, how do you handle that kind of uh, input if somebody ever says something like that to you? When you lose a loved one, and it doesn't have to be a child, although I think that's definitely one of the harder things, whether that child is is murdered or if they get sick and they die, I don't know. I, I think it depends on the person, first of all. I think, you know, Bob and I are very compassionate people, and so it's easier for us to um, appreciate their their feelings and and it's just you know it's so it is different though when it's they're murdered um because you there's so many unknowns um you agree you know you everybody will, will grieve okay when they lose a loved one and i i it's okay my mother died when I was 15 years old from cancer. And th- I, I, that hit me really hard, really hard. And um, I lost a lot of people. I mean, we're getting older and, you know, I, I've lost siblings and all of those deaths were easier for me to handle. Um, I still grieve them but it was nothing as bad as losing my mom. And I, I would just, it's, I was like, okay, I made it through losing my mom and it did take a long time for me to get over that. Um, losing Liz is like so different. It's because it is your child. And, but it's also, it's like, okay, I, 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 I've grieved Liz. Okay. But you can't get past. There's more to this than just grief. Um, grief. I mean, it does come and go regardless, but it's, there's, you do come to terms with it and you, you, 
that doesn't mean you, you'll still miss those people and, and that kind of thing. But with this, there's, there's questions. There's so many questions. You can, you know, people die in car accidents. People get sick and you're going to grieve those people and you're going to miss them and you love them and all that. But this is such a violent act and there's no answers. There's, we don't know, you know, some people do get to find out, you know, they know who did it from the very beginning, but there's still, it's like, you're just that why. And like, we, we know that when this case is solved and it goes to trial, if the person or persons that did this would give us a reason why, it's not going to make any sense. And I mean, but it's like ongoing though, because we're not just grieving the loss of our daughter. We're grieving the fact that we don't know what happened. If somebody gets sick, that that's awful. That, that's awful. And, but, and you have to kind of look at, okay, well that happens. I mean, you know, it's, it's people do get sick and die. People do get in car accidents and die. This just makes so no sense at all. It's so. This is baffling. Our daughter didn't live a dangerous life. Our daughter was the height of caution. But more to answering your question. So if somebody comes up to me and says, I lost my son to a car accident or I lost my son to suicide or I lost my son to illness. I don't ever make a grief one-upsmanship and say, yeah, I'm really sorry right. for that. But, you know, what do you think it's like when somebody drives up to a garage shell and shoots your daughter four times? Uh, I never do that mm -hmm. because that's an unhelpful thing. I will offer what comfort I can. Um, I don't ever try to, to minimize anybody's grief and their reaction because I don't know what it's like to lose a son or a daughter to cancer. I, I hope never to understand that pain. I don't know. There's no way to react to it except to be as open and compassionate as you can. And sometimes it's really hard. If I'm having a bad day, mm -hmm. if, if, I've, I've used the analogy, if I'm in my state where I'm like a brake pad with 800,000 miles on it and just nothing left, um, and somebody comes to me, a lot of times I'll offer to cover, but I won't dwell on it because I know that I'm either going to break out into tears or it's just going to worsen it. So it just depends on where you're at with it. But the one thing that that happens is like you always just listen because mm -hmm. yes. they're talking to you because they need something. And if you can figure out what they need, they need you to acknowledge that it's a hard thing or it's a similar thing. Then I'm happy to do that. Um, sometimes you get asked for advice and it's really tough, but you gotta, you gotta go with your heart. This is very much not a head thing. And but it is hard, and a lot of people will come up and say the opposite. They'll say, "I can't imagine what you're going through," and you know the 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 reaction to that should never be, "Oh, you just have no idea." 
this is just the worst thing imaginable. I mean, you just, you have to thank them for their compassion. And, and that's what it's all about is acknowledging the other person. And they're trying to, you know, they're trying to say they can't walk a mile in your shoes. And if someone ever says that to me, I said, I hope you never have to walk an inch in my shoes. I hope this never happens to you or anyone you love. And those are, those are really good words of advice. Uh, and obviously you probably interact with a lot of, of different people that have gone through all kinds of different events. I know you, uh, interact a lot with the, the parents of murdered children, especially, um, so have you made any really good friends, allies that have helped you uh, along the way with your grief, uh, other families that have lost someone? Have you formed any long lasting relationships with them? Yeah, we have. Um, there's a couple of families that really jump out of my mind, people that we've dealt with, and they're all parents of murdered children, support group members. Um, there's a uh, an amazing, just an amazing man by the name of Paul Castro, and he lost his son to a road rage incident shooting, and he has taken to posting some of the most insightful and helpful posts on how to deal with this grief. And I've actually been so fortunate. Uh, last last year, Andy invited me to speak at their um, at their annual gala with several other victims' family members to talk about our experience and how Crime Stoppers had helped us in in and such. And it's a sitting there with him and, and that and and staying in touch with him and talking to him has just really, really helped. Um, there's another couple, uh, David and Debbie Schwartz, and their murderer's been in jail for quite some time. But they went nearly 22 years between the crime and the arrest. And David is one of those no-nonsense kind of guys. He absolutely speaks the truth from his from his experience. And the one thing that he'll constantly do at the POMC member meetings is the message that he gives out is don't ever give up. Your case can be solved. Don't ever give up. You know, if, if you're having a tough time. And then what's interesting is um, there's a, there's another person who, um, who we've gotten close with and that's Allison Steele and her husband, her and her husband Lawrence and Allison is one of those shining lights that's just unbelievable so they were such an active participant in helping their case in the prosecutorial phase they they did everything they could to help the DA in their first trial ended in a mistrial and they took the lessons learned from that mistrial and came back at the retrial with everything they had and assisted their their ADA in Bear County with making sure that, that the second trial was successful and it was. 
But the thing that Allison did that was just extraordinary was in her case, her daughter was abducted and her daughter was taken from a public venue with friends nearby. And when they tried to put out an Amber alert, her daughter was too old. She was beyond the guidelines for Amber alert. And so as a result, she was alive. She was taken from the venue and missing and they had details and all they could do was put a bolo out through local law enforcement. They couldn't enlist the public. And so she decided along with some others to make sure that there was something in place. And so they actually created the framework, found a legislator in the, in the, the, the Texas rep, uh, legislature to sponsor a bill. And Andy was a huge player in this. And they spent, I don't know how many days down in Austin testifying and providing support and everything. And ultimately, this has been passed. It's called the CLEAR Act. And it allows someone that's between the age of the Amber Alert and the Silver Alert to put out the word that a you know, 19-year-old child has been abducted. And you look at a person like Allison Steele, who was in the midst of dealing with a trial and trying to get justice for her daughter, and she pulled out all the stops. And Andy was there every step along the way to help her. And with the help and support of the parents of murdered children, because a lot of parents of murdered children would take time off work and go down to Austin and, and be in the gallery or, or provide public testimony to, to this, they got that law passed. And that's just another example of how um, you get close. I, I remember I was driving to work one day and I was passing a billboard on the highway with a clear alert. And I had my phone and I, I just started hitting the, the picture button because I had never seen one before. And I ended up got one that was clear enough to send. Um, was just kind of crazy. Uh, I won't ever do that again. But um, I sent it off to Allison and she was so excited. She said, this is the first one. And ultimately I know that that program has resulted in people being found and that's the kind of thing you know you you we have these contacts within pomc i know that if uh they have a phone chain and if i ever have a bad night i can pick up the phone and call any one of the volunteers on that phone chain and they'll pick up the phone and, and talk to me it might be two in the morning and you just you're not going to get that anywhere else I'm I'm always impressed when out of tragedy comes something positive, like you're talking about, where there's laws changed or uh, new procedures or something positive to help, you know, someone else. You know, it, we all hear about terrible things that come from from these these terrible things that happen, but to hear positive things, how people are able to help other people as a result. That's always, always very positive to hear that. You know, Andy has done something that is so amazing. And that is he partnered with uh, a local newscaster 
from uh, our Fox affiliate, Randy Wallace, and they have a regular series that's run for I don't know how long, but it's called Breaking Bond. And I'm going to let Andy talk about it, but when you want to talk about making positive change, this is an extraordinary outreach to the public to let people know how horrible the situation here is in Harris County. So, Andy, if you would, wouldn't mind, please talk about it because it's very inspiring. No, you're right, Bob. We, In my tenure as a victim advocate, I've been responsible for pushing or enacting over 25 pieces of legislation. And for every piece of legislation or bill that we get passed into law, there's always a catalyst for change. And that's what I like to do is take a negative and turn it into positive because I can't go back and change what happened to you or your family, but we try to make things better for others to come along and you've achieved a lasting legacy. So one of the things that we started noticing in Crime Stoppers was we started seeing a trend of people who were murdered and by defendants who've been released on multiple felony bonds, one, three, four, five, sometimes even seven or eight bonds, or they were given a PR personal recognizance bond, which is basically a get out of jail free card. So we teamed up with a local Fox News affiliates and we created this weekly segment called Breaking Bond, which we've now done for two and a half years. And every week we start putting the focus on cases that from our perspective should have been prevented, but because the system has now had a change of philosophies of releasing defendants, no matter how many times they've been charged with crimes, including violent crimes, people have paid the ultimate price for that. Because of the attention that we put on this issue, we were actually able to pass into law what was known as Senate Bill 6, which basically states now you can no longer get a PR, personal recognizance, or a get-out-of-jail-free card on any offense involving a violent type of crime. And that's cut a great deal of these types of cases that we've been documenting. So that's just another example with working with local media to expose the issues and to get a positive resolution. And that's what victim advocacy should be about. You know, and that's what Bob and Rosemary do. You know, besides trying to get their daughter's case, they become a tremendous asset and have encouraged other people to follow their trend in getting rewards enhanced and keeping their cases alive. So they unwittingly have become role models in the surviving family members of homicide advocacy group. And we need more people like them to kind of show, fam- <clears throat> show families the way. And you can never have enough allies in, in this fight to, uh, to well, help Well, if you think about it, uh, Every other entity in the criminal justice system has a a large departments. They have people that are working. They have lobbyists, paid lobbyists, particularly uh, inmates and defendants. For the most part, there's very few people who actually advocate on behalf of victims' rights. And for the most part, they don't get paid to appear in Austin. And that takes an awful lot amount of perseverance and dedication, dedication, and as Bob told you, Allison's story 
was truly remarkable. And that's why I nominated her for a national award, which she won the Foundation for Improvement of Justice Award for taking what happened to her daughter and turning it into positive social change that will benefit others. So I know in the the first part of our discussion last time we talked, we were talking about and you were going to discuss some things uh, that Andy thought maybe were a good idea, things that you wanted to touch on, certain points. Did you want to talk a little bit about some of that stuff? Yeah, because I think it's really important. It's really important to give other people who are walking with us the same tools and same advantages that we have. So we've done a couple of things that are different. So one of the things that we did, and one of the reasons why we've really been very focused on this, is on February 6th of 2019, when we had our first press conference at Crime Stoppers, we were able to add $15,000 to the reward offering that Crime Stoppers does. So if the detective in your case wants Crime Stoppers uh, to offer a reward, they have to reach out to them and, and have that conversation. And then Crime Stoppers, part of their, one of the most important things in their mission, We'll have a press conference, create posters and flyers and things that you need, and offer a reward of $5,000 for information leading to the arrest and conviction of someone involved in a crime. And uh, Sergio's brother had started to go fund me. And, and this is kind of out of left field, but I think it's an important thing to note. One of Liz's friends was um, the Peter Mayhew Foundation. And Peter Mayhew was the actor that uh, portrayed Chewbacca in five of the Star Wars films. And Liz became a loved and endeared friend, and they always described her as a family member to them. Well, when they heard about it, and they heard about the GoFundMe, they made it a point to go through all the effort that it took to get a representative from the foundation down to up or to Houston to the press conference with a check. And in fact, they sent them a blank check so that at the very last minute, they could round up the reward to $15,000. And Crime Stoppers graciously accepted that donation. And so when we announced this crime in February of 2019, we were able to stand up in front of the world and say there's $20,000. And I've already talked about it and I can't say any more about it, but it's just so amazing the the way the Crime Stoppers collects tips and how they keep everything safe and anonymous. But that was a big deal. And then after a couple of years went by, um, we started to think that $20,000 is an amazing amount of money, but $50,000 would be a much more amazing amount of money. And so... We talked with Andy, we talked with our detectives, we even talked with uh, our district attorney, Kim Ogg, about the possibility of raising the reward. And this is not something that we will probably ever do again because we don't want to send a message that this is an ever-increasing amount. What we wanted to do is we wanted to really 
make a statement. So Rosemary and I talked with Andy about how to do this, and he gave us a few pieces of advice, and we set up a GoFundMe. And uh, we did this January 1st of 2022, and we ran it for 18 days because we wanted to be able to hand Crime Stoppers a cashier's check for whatever amount we raised on the 26th of January when we did another press conference down at Crime Stoppers headquarters. And we waited until January because we didn't want to put this out before Christmas. We wanted to have this after Christmas was done. And we set up a GoFundMe and we set up a lot of follow-on. We did a lot of talking to to our audiences on Facebook and talking with local media wherever we could. And we managed to raise nearly $30,000. And after we paid the fees to the GoFundMe platform, Rosemary and I decided to kick in uh, money to cover it up to 30 grand. And we brought the cashier's check to Crime Stoppers the day of that press conference. And it felt so good to stand up on the stand with with Andy, with our detectives, with Kim Og, with, with everyone that was there and say, I now have 50,000 reasons for you to come forward. And the way that we did the fundraiser was done in a way to make it feasible. And Andy said to me, you know, I'd love it if you would write that down and kind of create a guide to like how to create a fundraiser. And there are certain things that you need to do. And we did that. And we have that sheet on how to do that kind of a fundraiser standing. And we've given it out to a lot of folks. And we've talked to a lot of people about how to raise the reward. One of the other things that we did that is, I've been told it's kind of unusual, is we got so tired of all the inaccuracies, in the, especially in the social media side, that we built a very simple website. And to go along with that website, I had business cards printed that are designed to, to so that if I talk to someone about the case, especially if it's a family member that needs help or advice, I can give them this business card and it has contact information for us. And it also has a link to her website because the thing that's been really nice about that website is it's consistently receiving about 3000 new views every month. And it's, we've had people go out into the sleuth groups and Reddit and, and such and publicize that this is a, the definitive source. And so what's happened is the quality of the social media that's going out there is radically improved. And again, we've talked to a number of families about how to do this and what we learned in doing. Um, the other thing that, that Andy suggested and we did it was um, because Peter Mayhew was involved in our case, it really helped the case kind of take off because that's kind of a weird angle that the actor that played Chewbacca, who was an amazingly loved human being, seven foot two to seven foot four inch tall, depending upon when you, you, you talk to him, 
the people wanted to hear about that. That was kind of unique. And so that really helped us get some, some publicity. And what Andy said to me is there's a couple of things that you need to do. Number one, keep a list of any media you talk to and not only get like, like the on-screen talent, you know, the news reporter or the anchor that does it, get their contact information, but go deeper and ask them for like the assignment editor name and phone number because the talent's going to move around, but the assignment desk is where you can reach out and say, hey, we've got a break on our case. We'd like to get an interview scheduled and they'll make it happen. So we did that. And then we in turn started adding uh, law enforcement to it. One of the things that you hear at the POMC meetings, unfortunately, is families who are having a tough time keeping in touch with their detectives. Um, it's, it's a, it's a horrible thing. It's, it's a fact of life. And when you're really struggling to get an update on your case, um, if the only thing you have is that detective's name, you kind of rapidly run out of, of options. And so Andy said, you know, these guys all have bosses and their bosses have bosses. And he said, take the time to figure out the chain of command. And so we did that. I, I have a way to reach out to multiple levels above our detective all the way up to, we're very fortunate because of Crime Stoppers, we've gotten to have a personal relationship with the sheriff. Um, I can reach out to the sheriff and say, hey, uh, I really need one of the detectives to be available for a press conference next Tuesday. We did a press conference one time where our detectives, that was their normal day off. So them going in and doing a press conference was basically the equivalent of overtime. And I reached out to the sheriff and said, um, Sheriff Gonzalez, I really need the detective to be available for the press conference. And because of the kind of person he is, he said, of course, whatever you need. Uh, tell him I'm okay with it. So fundraising to enhance a reward is super important. Uh, a way to publicize the results and give people a, a fixed point in space, a single source of truth to come and read about the case and get information is really important. Having a contact list that we just recently did something. Uh, we had a we had a new idea this summer that um, I was looking back at all the media that we talked to over the years, and some of them I haven't spoken with in a while. And so we came up with the idea of creating a uh, newsletter that's associated with significant developments in the case. And so this is not something we're going to send out on a regular basis. It's not going to become an annoyance, but it is going to be a point of information that, hey, something's changed. And so because I had that really great list of resources, um, we issued the first newsletter last week, um, about a week ago today. And the net effect of that is we have already lined up uh, three new media sources um, that are requesting an interview. And we just got approval from 
uh, from the detective to do those interviews. And, and two of them are social media. So heads up, Andy, we'll be sending you some names. Uh, but the idea behind the newsletter was a simple thing. This is not a cold case. This case is an active investigation. And even though it's been nearly five years, um, we have not given up and we will never give up. And there's something else that Andy and his group have done that I think is just extraordinary that I really wish he would talk about because the, the support for victims is a, there's no such thing as a intake and an outtake event of support for victims. You know, the, the, the crime stoppers and Andy are there for everyone. But one of the things that they realized is in some cases, the family members are at an age where, um, they may or may not be able to attend parole hearings. And so Andy is, you know, Andy is very innovative and he came up with a way that they can have their presence felt at a parole hearing. And it's received a lot of attention. Uh, it's just an extraordinary program. And along those lines, um, would you care to talk about that, that Andy a little bit more? Yeah, I'll, I'll fill you in on this. Uh, we started, and it actually goes back to a couple that uh, Bob had talked about, and that was David and Debbie Schwartz, whose son, Douglas, and his friend Eric were murdered in 1994. The suspect fled the country, took 21 years. They extradited him back, stood trial. 2017, he got 60 years for both homicides. He'll be eligible for parole in 2043. The reality is David and Debbie Schwartz aren't going to be around in 2043. That's just human nature. That's just the way it is. So I thought, how do we go about preserving their voice for a parole hearing that's not going to take place for over 20 some odd plus years or 30 some odd years in some cases? So we came up with this idea and we were funded to actually create videos specifically for the parole board. And we just wrapped up this year's project. We've done 32 videos with victims' families who are either going through the parole review process now or eventually will have a parole hearing. And the concept basically is that, especially in a state as large as Texas, where parole hearings are held all over the state, sometimes it's not logistically feasible for you to attend. There could be health reasons. There could be natural reasons such as you passed away or so forth. But this way, at least you are assured of having your voice. So we partnered with the Board of Pardons and Paroles to create videos that will be archived in the file so that whenever the offender comes up for parole, they will have access to the video. So I think it's a great deal excuse me, of relief for victims' families to know that their voice will forever be preserved and they don't have to worry about other things that we have to deal with on an everyday cycle. So we're really proud of this project. It's precedent setting. No one else is doing anything like this, but it goes back to an issue of victim advocacy that I realize very few people are even aware of or talking about, and that is post-conviction advocacy. And that's what this does. Well, that's a fantastic idea, as is the uh, the newsletter uh, that you sent out, because I think as much as people want to help with the case and keep Liz's story out there, 
you know, they, they maybe go on with other things and they're not paying as much attention. So I think that newsletter is also a good idea to send out there for people just to remind them, hey, here's some fresh information or here's a, a new update in the case. One of the things I think is really important, and we've been talking about this, so Rosemary and I are trying to look forward to what we can do on a sustainable basis. And so we're writing these things up, you know, the, the, the business cards, the website, the fundraising, um, the guidelines on how to handle work with media. We're writing these things up. And it's ultimately our goal to find a way to distribute them uh, on a larger scale. We're still in the sort of the early stages of thinking it through because I think it's an important thing. And Andy and Crime Stoppers have been very, very uh, supportive of our trying to do this. And I know that we have a couple of places where it would make sense to make these documents available to like parents of murdered children which is just such an extraordinary national organization. And so I'd like to have these things all drafted up and, and made available so that they may, they've got the audience, so they might be able to help us with the distribution. And also, um, since we started working with you, Mike, um, the whole idea behind CrimeCon as a national event that offers chances for networking to happen between media, between law enforcement, between victims and their families. Um, we had not heard of this prior to our involvement with you. And it just seems to me like that's another place where we could make resources available to get word out to help families. And I know that I'm going to, we're going to really take a hard look at the one scheduled for next year. Um, to see, you know, see if there's a, a way for us to be able to attend it because I think getting the word out to as many people as possible, because like we stated before, um, I don't know how many Andes there are out in the world, um, but I don't think it's a whole lot. And he's kind of indicated that it's not a whole lot. Yeah. And so I think it's really important. I think it's really important to us to help as many families as we can. And even though our reach is kind of limited and we're, you know, we're not in a financial place where we could, you know, school something up and, and ramp this thing and turn it on and make it happen. But I think we can document this stuff and provide people advice, like where to find support. Um, I'd love to get a really solid, uh, therapist to give us advice on how to find a therapist to help you with your with your grief because as we've as we've learned ourselves um, therapists are few and far between that can deal with this that have experience in dealing with this and it's a very special thing and so furthering the reach of our experience is really significant and that's an important thing and i know that over the next couple of years we will we will find ways 
to get this word out to more people and help as many as we can. But we already have helped. I mean, yes. Bob, you know, it has has brought our but the things that he's you know the fundraiser and the the media and all that he's brought that to the attention of, at POMC, POMC, and so he we've actually had a couple people who, who have called us and from POMC that are looking for you know okay how did you do this because it's it's until we get it really solidified in in print it's kind of word of mouth and it but and that's a good thing too because the people will have questions and and so we can talk and we usually talk together with the person because we're usually they'll call us out of the blue and we'll both be watching tv or whatever and and we'll stop what we're doing and we'll give them you know what worked for us or you know what didn't um yeah, a lot it's, of people, it's, it's more personal. A lot of people will call and say, I just don't have any idea how to set up a fundraiser. And there's a right way to do it and a wrong way to do it. By that I mean, you know, when we first were going to set it up, we thought that it was going to be so simple to set it up and then we just designate the crime stoppers as the recipient. And it doesn't work that way because if you supplement a reward at crime stoppers and the case gets solved, without a tip being credited in the case, um, Crime Stoppers needs to return those funds to where they come from. So if you do a GoFundMe, like we had 145 people contribute to our $30,000 GoFundMe, well, it would be very difficult for an organization like Crime Stoppers to try and find 145 people and offer them a return of their funds. So one of the things he says is, you know, you handle it personally, and then you make the donation to Crime Stoppers. And if the reward ever has to be returned, we'll let you know. And we've made a commitment that we're going to find as many of those donors as possible and offer them uh, a return on their investment with great gratitude from the family. And, and, that's the kind of thing where you would think, oh, it's going to be really easy. Set up a GoFundMe, designate Crime Stoppers as the entity, and it isn't. You know, it's, and these fundraisers are a lot of work. We did at least once a day updates to that fundraiser on GoFundMe and in our social media and to our network of friends uh, every day. And we would come up with a new story and a new picture and a, a new outreach. And one of the things that really was something that we said that I thought that has turned out to be very important in that fundraising was, look, if you can give a dollar, that helps. But if you can't give anything, the most important thing you can do is share it. Because we have quite a few names of people that contributed to the fundraiser where we have no idea who they are. We don't know them. They're not part of our you part of our group of people that we interact with and we know that these donations have come in because somebody shared it and that's all part of the advice we're giving is we want people to succeed so that they can do more and one thing that I I definitely want to touch on 
before we um, conclude our conversation is we've talked about it a couple times is, is your website who killed Liz Um I, I can't stress the importance of how important, you know, important it is to have accurate and complete thorough information. Your site is definitely contains all of that. It, it's, it's probably the best resource that you can find. And it, it's important in a case to not have misinformation go out there. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit more about your site, how much work goes into it, how updated is it, how often do you update that kind of stuff. Well, when we originally had the idea, we thought, how do we get the word out to the world that there's there's a single source of truth in this case that's open to the public? And so we, we thought about a website. Um, by trade, I'm a technical writer, so I'm very used to writing things. Writing is easier for me. It's much harder when it comes to my daughter in the case because it's it's personal. It's very personal. It's, it's you know, when I have to sit down and write something on this case, it's 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 much longer than if I'm doing something for work. But um, what we decided to do was, first off, um, we needed to find something that was affordable. And I needed to find a website hosting source that had a simple way to build a page. Because this is the big stumbling block. So how do you create the content for the web? And we were very lucky. My son, Robert, came up with a wonderful uh, web address for us to use, and we licensed it, rememberingliz.com. But for the... um, for the actual website, the web address is whokilledlizbaraza.com. And that's a kind of a jarring thing to put in a publication. Come visit my website, whokilledlizbaraza.com. So what we did was we set up Remembering Liz Baraza. And if you click on that link, it doesn't open anything at that side. It pops you right over into the website. And that redirect is really good because it allows us to put something out there in a publication without worrying about people being turned off or clicking a link like who killed Liz It's softer. It's softer. So we made that decision early on, and I bought both of those URLs. And, you know, depending upon where you you license the, the URL and pay the fees, it's anywhere from – Four to twenty dollars a year. It's not brutal, but I will say this: uh, make sure you use a good email address because if you fail to re-register it when the when the fees are due, you will lose the URL, and somebody might grab it. Um, then we found a web hosting provider that had a really good, simple way to build pages, and we we purchased a, a package from them, gave them the URLs, and got them all set up. And then Rosemary and I and my son Robert and some of her friends kind of just had big brainstorm sessions. How should we organize this? And so we decided that the front page needed to be all about um, the case from a very high-level perspective. 
it needed to state that this was a site that was built by her parents to serve as a as, as a place where you could come and get the facts, no speculation. And then we also acknowledged Crime Stoppers, so that we wanted to funnel tips to Crime Stoppers. And then we acknowledged the Peter Mayhew Foundation because ultimately for both of the fundraising events we did, the initial one that raised 15 and the secondary one that raised 30, uh, they were a huge support and partnership to us. So we wanted to acknowledge that, that, that incredible support. So we decided we needed a front page. And then we felt like a lot of what people get wrong about the case were things about Liz or Liz and Sergio or our family. And so we created a page called About Liz. And we just started doing, think of it as a bulleted list. And it says things like, Liz was born in Oak Grove, Illinois on June on June. 26th. 26th of 1989. Um, and that's just a freestanding statement. It, it's, you can't dispute it. If you want to dispute it, I've got a birth certificate. Um, you know, Liz was married on February 1st of 2014. Liz and Sergio bought a house in April of 2016. We, we laid out the facts. Where she lived. Where she lived. But, you know, from how they met, where they went to school. Um, you know, and then we also included specific things that relate to misinformation we saw circulating. So when you say how often do we update it, we don't actually update it very often, but I do update it anytime I think we need to set the record straight. So this whole thing about how many times she was shot uh, is particularly troubling to us because people are using it to challenge the theory in the case. And they're challenging it based on an error that somebody else made. So we immediately went up on the site as soon as we started to see that take ground. And we put a statement that says she was shot four times. Um, so we'll do that, and we will continue to do that. And I always make sure and say on the pages, when was the last time I updated them so that people know. We did a um, did a piece. This was the hardest piece, and this took several months to do. And that is, in Liz's case, so much of what happened and so much of how this case is going to be solved is related to the timeline. And that's because we don't have any physical evidence in this case. There's no DNA. There's there's nothing physical other than whatever ballistics were recovered. Um, the murderer, the, the coward that killed my daughter in cold blood, didn't didn't leave anything behind. It was very they, they knew very well not to leave anything behind. And we even believe that as they drove around the neighborhood, casing the neighborhood and seeing what her husband was driving, that they did so in a way to identify where all the cameras were. So we decided to put together the timeline. And that was so difficult mm -hmm. because we're trying to put in detail what happened on January 25th and 26th and the days following of 2019 
And to us, those days are really confusing. Um, we know certain things for a fact because we can check them in our Google Maps log and we can see where we were, etc. And, and there, like my son, was very, very, very helpful in us getting some of these things right. Um, but we went to law enforcement and said, we're going to do this timeline. First off, is it okay? Because you always want to help law enforcement preserve the case. So you always want to make sure that any information you put out there is something that they accept as reasonable and something that should be out there. And so after we had sort of our personal kind of stuff. Yeah, and like the 12th or 15th pass through it, um, we put it to our detectives. And at that point, our primary detective, Michael Ritchie, had cycled off the case. He'd gotten promoted to sergeant and transferred to parole. And we had a new homicide detective. No. Or, patrol. Patrol, sorry. He cycled off and was assigned to patrol. And at that point, we had a new detective, Detective um, Wallace Wyatt. And we washed this timeline through both of them. And they filled in all kinds of details because they had access to the 911 calls, which we didn't have access to. The logs. They had access to the, the Sheriff's Department incident reports that were done. And so they filled in a lot of the details that we missed, specifically times. It's, yeah, we wanted to make sure that the times, since we, it, this was all about timeline, we wanted the times correct. And we also wanted to be sure if we didn't know for a fact, if we couldn't corroborate that time, we made sure to state when we entered a new event in the timeline that it's either approximate or it's, it's based on our memory, which may be faulty or whatever. But we, we hammered out this timeline. And it was, like I said, it was the hardest thing to do because our timeline is very complicated. But so much happens so quickly. Yeah. And so much happened before she was murdered, mm -hmm. which is really one of the most important things that we wanted to get out there is one establish the fact that the murderers were seen driving by her house at 2.30 in the morning uh, on the day of the crime, approximately. Um, and we believe they were casing the house to see what vehicle her husband would be driving. So they could tell when he left the house and she was all alone. And that's the thing. We say we believe or, you know, yeah. because that's not a fact. We don't know really why they were going. Obviously, they were there to case, but we don't know the reason why. Yep. So that's what we believe. We don't we don't know for sure that this was a hit, but that's what we believe. That's what the police believe. Right. Um, so we, we try to be as it, honest about it as we can. If it's a, a, just our belief, then it, we state that. If it's a fact, then it, that's stated, you know, and we say, okay, this is a fact that was given by the, the police officers, the detectives. They, they, they got the phone call. This 911 phone call came in at such and such a time. Those are actual times based on the police records records yeah. so um because obviously like when we got the phone call you know uh about her alarm um i i believe at that time we act those are actual uh times that because we could go back in my phone but i've since gotten a new phone so i but at that time i think we had that yeah. original uh phone 
So um, we, we really have tried to be as open as we can about the timeline so that you all, primarily, because this is who, I mean, the, the website, I mean, it's really for everybody, but the, the, the uh, crime shows, the social media. Um, the journalists. Yes. Need, it, it's just a place where they can go and they, they can be kind of assured that these are the facts. And if they're not the facts that there are our police, it's going to say that there are police. Or if it's an approximate time, it's an approximate time. It's important. I mean, there's... It, it could solve the case. We believe we believe that it could solve the case. And the other thing is, so we also decided that we wanted to put Liz's face and her presence on the site. So we created a page that has pictures and videos of Liz at various stages in her life. Embarrassing baby photos all the way up through photos that were taken days before she was uh, she was killed and we think that's an important thing i want people to see what a beautiful woman she was because she was really extraordinary and then the land how funny she was because yeah. there's ones where she's being her, cor her corky self and yeah. you know it's it's the pictures are designed to really help people understand who lives why you know and and and, and if you do one of these sites and you're going to put in pictures, make sure that you get permission hmm. from anyone that appears in the pictures to use the image. Like we actually have posted some pictures from Liz's wedding and we reached out to the photographer and asked for permission to, to use those photos. And, and every time we do national media, of course, uh, their legal departments need signed disclaimers that um, we have permission to use this photo. And her wedding photographer has been just so wonderful. She gave us a blanket release to mm -hmm. use Liz's wedding photos wherever we needed them. Mm -hmm. So it's something you might not think about, but the last thing you want to do is have to pull stuff down because somebody felt like you didn't have the right to post it. And then the last thing that we did, and this has been the hardest thing to do, is we put up a page of links to what we felt was important media coverage on the case. And it's hard to do for a couple of reasons. So this case has gone far and wide. Um, this case has enjoyed coverage in the press in Great Britain and Europe. This case has been extensively covered here in the United States. Um, and some of the reports are re-airings on a network syndication. So we'll do a shot with Fox 26 and other Fox affiliates will pick up the coverage because they picked up the original story and they'll air that. And so it's not designed to be a definitive list of coverages. But it's the ones that we feel are important. And like, for instance, one of the things that I'll do next week is I'll add these two podcasts uh, to that list. It, it's hard because... Oh, it's hard because 
we felt responsibility to look at all of these sites again. And that's because on the day of the event, the footage that shows her death, the footage that shows the assault attack on my daughter um, was made available to the media. And some media outlets chose to air that coverage without editing out the, the, the seconds of it that involve her actually being shot. And the, the animal that killed my daughter was so cold and ruthless that seeing her actually be killed is just it's horrendous. And I had really tried very hard to not see that segment. And I will say this, the majority of outlets that cover her case today cover the footage that has the shooting edited out. There but are others, though. There are others that don't. Numerous, like and so we even created a, a section that says very explicit in it because there are still unedited clips of her being shot mm -hmm. and there are other clips where someone has taken and put uh the audio from the nest doorbell cam underneath the video from the neighbor's surveillance and done their best to synchronize it and it is it's so brutal to hear her scream. It's so brutal to know that her last moments on earth were filled with terror and pain. And I want to make sure that if you're clicking on links in this thing, that you're not accidentally walking into something that will just traumatize you because it traumatizes almost everyone that sees it. So what we do have that links to, um, to press and media on there as well. So it's a really simple site. It has five pages. And we don't we don't have any feedback mechanism on the site. I don't have any way for someone that's on the site to send me a message. That's done intentionally because we want to shield our family. And I I would heartily suggest if you build a site like this that um, you really think that part through. But um, it has a URL that I think is really easy to remember, remember and live. And uh, we have friends that will regularly drop this URL into social media, either theirs or into uh, Reddit or um, the, web the Web Sleuth channels or any of the other. Because one of the things we found is there are dozens, if not maybe even I don't know 50 I mean. to 100 different places where people talk about our case. And so this website becomes a way to get facts into that discussion because we're not going to respond to that. That's just not something we're interested in doing. But who knows? I mean, it could very well be that someone in one of these groups finds something or hears something that we haven't heard. And if we can encourage them to go to Crime Stoppers and drop that tip, I can tell you for a fact that our detective, Michael Ritchie, who's back on the case because he uh, promoted 
from, or he was transferred from patrol back to homicide, where he now um, is heading up a fifth squad in the homicide department at, at Harris County Sheriff's Office. Um, he will follow up on any anything that he gets in terms of tips and leads, especially if they come from crime stoppers. So, I mean, that's the important thing. And the other thing that I would stress, because it's the easiest thing to do, easiest thing to do, is go to one of the online providers of print services and get a little business card made up with a picture of your loved one and details on, like, how to submit a, a tip. So we have a Crime Stoppers tip line on her business card. I have the website on her business card. Um, all these things are really important because you run into somebody, you run into the district attorney at an event, you run into, um, we've talked with uh, senators and representatives okay. for the state of Texas. We've handed her card out in so many different locations because what you want to do is you want to make it easy for someone to help you. And so I think the business cards really inexpensive. I think we spent like $20 for the business cards. I think that's a really critical thing to do. Well, you know, you know well, you'll have people that, you know, uh, overhear you talking to, you know, wherever about the, not about the case, because we don't talk about the case uh, really in public, but, you know, we're, Somebody overhears something, you know, oh, I, I just heard about this case. And to hand them the card so that they can actually find out more on their own, on their own and that's instead of us having to go through stuff. I mean, sometimes we will. It depends yeah. on the person and, what you know, their interest. But it's just a, a, a great way to, to reach out to people. Or maybe, you know, you just meet somebody that you think, God, these people sound like you know they might might be able to help. We'll give them the the um, the business card. Yeah, we also had um, we also had the vinyl wristbands made up. So we're on our like third order of five hundred vinyl wristbands that say Elizabeth Nellie Barraza, Justice for Liz. Um, and um, people will see that and they'll see the name and the thing and they'll say, oh, wait a minute. And, you know, I can't, I've had a number of people who have um, seen that wristband and wanted to talk about it. Wanted um, to know what that was about. Yeah, what that was all about. What, you know, why are you wearing wristbands or whatever. And um, it, it's just, you got to find these little things that help you draw interest to the case because as we were told on February 6th, our job is to get the person that knows something about the case, that knows what it'll take to get it solved, to get in touch with crime stoppers. Mm. And so that's sort of been where we've focused. You know, we've we've we make ourselves available to, to the media to have a talk. In fact, like I said, we sent out the newsletter and we have a, a new media person, someone we've never done any work with, and reached out to us and we'll be, we just got permission uh, 
from our detective and from Andy to go ahead and initiate that call. So we'll be reaching out to her this week and setting up some time to sit down and talk. And it's just, it's literally just keep the lines of communication open and talk about it however you can, wherever you can. And these are the kinds of things that, that we can promote in helping others, you know, um, let them know this is what we're doing, we've done. Um, and uh, if they're interested, we can help them get started. You know, we're not, we're not going to be there to build their website, but we can give them the order when things need to be done. And everything needs to go, though, be approved by your, your detective. I mean, if at all possible, because you don't want to do anything that's going to hurt the case, and you may inadvertently do that. So that's why, I mean, everything that we do goes not only everything. We, I mean, we, it's just so important. Absolutely. Because we don't. The thing is, you don't know. Pardon me. You know what matters. You don't know what matters, and and so if this is going to be a waste of time, then we don't want to do it. If this is going to be, this could have potential of hurting the case. We're, we don't want to do that, and and that's one of the reasons why we don't respond. It's really the the reason why we can't. We don't respond to people on the internet, you know, who, who want to reach out until like for you example, when you reached out, we're, we weren't going to talk to you until we got the okay from Andy and the detective. Um, and in the interim, you went ahead and published the, the, the first episode on Liz on your criminology platform. And uh, I saw the, the, how you reached out to us and we were asking who wanted to be involved. And when we listened to that episode, which I think was July 16th, um, we immediately recognized that this was a person of substance, ethical, responsible, wanting to get the truth out there. And that's when we reached out to you and you mentioned this, this channel that you have. Which we're really, we are so yeah. excited. I'm more excited about this two-part episode than I think anything we've done in a long time because it goes to helping others. Which yeah. always ends up helping yourself. Yep. We're always <laughs> it, better off. Yeah. It, it's, it, I, I'm a firm believer that it, it helps you as much as it, when you help, help somebody else. I yep. mean, so. 100%. I agree with that, that, uh, a hundred percent. And, um, you know, that you can never have too many allies. And so I, you know, that's one of the reasons I appreciate you coming on here to, to discuss all of this. Um, as we get ready to wrap up here, um, the, the one thing I want to ask you sort of in closing, and you touched on it a, a, a moment ago, you said uh, the monster that, that killed Liz um, I, I, I'm a firm believer this case is going to be solved one day. Um, and you're going to find out who that person or, or persons were, whether you knew them, whether they're strangers, 
Uh, I'm sure you're going to have a lot of questions and it's never going to be, as you said earlier, it's not going to make sense maybe. Um, but are you prepared for that next chapter when you find out who did this and then having to go through the whole process of court and that part of the case? I don't believe that you can ever be prepared for that. We know it's coming. We do believe that. We, we, we believe this will be solved. Don't know when. Uh, but we do believe it will be solved. And it, there's no way you can prepare for that. I remember the night that she was shot coming home because I actually went came home. Um, I, I sat on the bed and I was thinking and my sister came in because she came in down from St. Louis and she came in and, and I was just like, this will never be over. It's never going to be over because there's always a next step. And you, there's no way you can prepare for any of that. First of all, we don't know how we'll react. Nobody does. You know, you, you through, through anything, you know, you think, you oh, I, I would do this or I would do that. You don't know what you would do. I mean, I, I know I've said that before about different things. And, and the fact is, you don't know, you know, how you're going to react to something. And if you're prepared, no, we'll, we're not prepared. We are aware and we are, uh, I think. Well, Andy's made it very clear to us that the arrest, arraignment, bail process, waiting for trial, trial, that whole thing is a complete, he, he says it's like learning a different language. Mm -hmm. um, he has made it very clear to us. And we have talked to a lot of families that have their perpetrators in various stages of that. Some of them just have a name and they're hunting for them. Some of them are in jail but have not been brought to trial. Some of them are in the midst of trial. And what I can tell you is I think it's hard as coming to grips with the fact that a coward murdered my daughter, I think the next steps will be much harder because, you know, here in Harris County, the DDA has worked really, really hard to speed up and work through the, the backlog of cases. But I mean, realistically, we're probably looking at, if they made an arrest today, we could be looking at a year and a half Oh, or two years before any of the significant trial phases would happen. And there are going to be things, there are things that a defense attorney can do that are designed to be done in favor of their client that are really negative towards the family. And one of the things that, that we just you can't get ready for is what is this going to look like when it happens? And Michael has always been right out with us. I mean, day one, the first time we met him, he said, I want you to be prepared when we, when we arrest the people responsible, you're going to be devastated. 
And we even asked him that question again last week. And his statement was my original statement holds. I think that when we find out who did this, you're going to be devastated. Because it, 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 we really believe it's somebody that she knew or, or, or knew her. Um, or that they hired someone to do Well, this. right. That, but I mean, it, in our case, we're probably looking at two different actors. The person that wanted her dead and the person who killed her. And, and we, we don't, don't know if we're we, going to get one or both. And we don't know if that's true or not. Either. Yeah. I mean, that that is a speculation on our part um, as well. But based on, you know, uh, conversations with the detectives, uh, that that's, that is a possibility. And so... To be prepared, you just, you, there's just no way. We know it's going to suck. We know it's going to it's going to be every phase is it's something else. It's, and a, it's and a new can, set of things. And you can, and not only that, but it's it's a new. How do you how do you prepare that? You can't. You know, you just you're. It's really going to be you're, that we're just going through each day, and it's and and you know what. We're not going to be prepared, but we'll get through it. Well, and we have people we can talk to. So, you know, we can, I can pick up the phone and call um, Allison Steele and her husband, Lawrence. I can pick up the phone and call David and Debbie Schwartz. I can talk with people that have been through this. Um, but every case is different. Every yeah, case and is every different. person is different. But they're, you know, they're going to give us whatever advice they can give us mm -hmm. based on their experience. Um, and, and the one thing that just keeps resounding in my head is never give up. Never give up. Push, push, push. And so that's what keeps us going. I don't believe that when there's an arrest, I don't believe in closure. I don't, I don't think I'm going to feel better about this. Like, my daughter's dead. She was an innocent she was an unarmed woman setting up for a garage sale and some coward walked up and took her life. Knowing who did it or why they did it or anything. I'm not I, I don't feel like I say, oh, thank God that's over. It's not gonna be that way. I I, I think the family pursues justice because that's what we need to do. We need to get these people off the streets. Because if they did it to our daughter, they could do it to someone else. Um, I want to see them pay for what they did. Ultimately, I would love to see anyone and everyone associated with planning and executing her murder to be identified and go through a, a jury process to make sure that we have the right people. But I, I just don't know what that's going to look like. I, I feel like I feel like that's going to be as hard or harder than five years not knowing who did it. The only thing about, you know, I, I reason why I think this is the hardest stage is because your trust is so uh, shattered. I mean, because we don't know who is responsible. It's, and who do you trust? I mean, I'd like to say that we trust a lot of people. I know that we, you know, do have some trust in some, 
But the fact is, there's always, especially since the detective said we're going to be devastated. And, and, and I think the reason why he said that is because he does believe that it's somebody that she knew because they had to know about the garage sale. And since she didn't do it any social media or anything, it, that's a very small group of people that knew about the garage sale. And that's where it's like going, okay, this is, this is tough. And when, I think it's just the fact that you, you don't know who to trust. I mean, I think through the years, our trust has grown back a little bit. Um, but, you know, there's, there's always like doubt. It's like, you we're know, always very cautious. You know, so always very cautious. Yeah. And that, you know, the whole thing with the next phase of the, of the case, when, when we have an arrest, and we're going to trial, you know, we've already been told when that happens, um, we have to change our behavior as relates to publicity. You know, even then, it's much more important to be working with the, the law enforcement and the district attorney's office to make sure that we don't say or do anything that hurts the case. And, and we're prepared for that, but we don't know what that looks like. If that makes sense. If that makes sense. Yeah. It makes sense to us. Yeah. I think it makes, will, will make sense to other people that are going through this. It's It's... You're prepared as much as you can be, but there, you know that there's always going to be something that's going to be thrown out there that you're like, well, what? Yeah, but initially when this happened, it never occurred to me that the arrest and entry transition over into the, the justice system would be a pain point, would be new trauma. And uh, all you have to do is go to one parents of murdered children's meeting and hear people tell their story, to hear them talk about, you know, I took the day off from work and went down because there was a hearing scheduled in my case and it got reset or it got postponed. We even heard that in one case, it was reset like a dozen times. And- Where you you are prepared for that day. Yeah, so you get yourself all ready, you go down to the courthouse and the defense makes a motion to reschedule the date because we heard one case where they were adopting a child and requested a six-month continuance. Um, it's just, you just, it's a whole different set of experiences. Well, I hope, I hope you do get the answers and I hope that the people, persons that are responsible are held accountable and we'll definitely do our part getting the word out of it about the case and uh, sending people to your website so they can get accurate and complete information. And I want to thank both of you and Andy for coming on too to discuss this in so much depth. It's a very important discussion that we had and I, I thank you both for coming on. Oh, thank you, Mike. We God bless you. We appreciate you taking the time and spending all this time on Liz's case and, and hopefully we do make a difference Somebody, you know, we've given some uh, survivors some ideas, and uh, that's what it's all about. Yeah. Thank you once again for joining me for this episode of The Murder of My Family. I'd like to thank Sonny Landon for writing and research assistance in this episode. We'll be back here soon with an all-new episode of The Murder of My Family, and I hope you'll join me for it. But before you go, remember, 
that every murder victim means something to somebody.